At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. An amazing story. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, let me just uh, remind you that tonight our FPU class begins, Financial Peace University. This is going to be on Zoom. So for anyone who uh, maybe you have debt and you just don't know how to get out of it or you're trying to figure out how to do a budget and how to get a handle on your finances so they're not handling you. Um, if, you um, if you want to do that, it's going to be on Zoom and it's not late to sign up, but it starts tonight at 6.30. So you want to go to woodsidebible.org slash events and you can sign up. And join that, I commend that to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our Lord, we have more than rice, storehouses more than rice. The junk in our garages is worth more than the wages that countless men and women who bear your name, our brothers and sisters, will ever see. Father, let that fact bother us. It must bother us. So that we may begin asking you questions. And even more important, allowing you to ask us questions. Questions that reveal our idols, but more sweet than that, that thrust us upon the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Father, please come and do a mighty work by your Holy Spirit in each one of us, each one of us. Blow us away. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, Paul says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you half the word of the Lord. I'm sure you've all had this thought of something good you should do, but then drag your feet to complete it. You know, I should write a letter to my friend in prison. I should ask my neighbors over for dinner. I should apologize to my spouse for what happened 10 years ago. There's those times when, when our conscience is pricked or our imagination sparked, but we fail to act. We fail to finish it. Well, in our text today, Paul is exhorting the church in Corinth to finish doing the good work of giving that they had started with many months bego- before, but they had not yet finished. We continue our series. This is part three of this series, Overflow, from him through us to all. And today we're going to talk about giving and partnership. Giving and partnership. And what I mean by that is that ready giving excels with reliable partnership. Ready giving excels with reliable partnership. Paul here talks to us, the church, about being generous and also to the leaders of the church who handle those offerings about doing it in an honorable way in a way that honors God uh, and that it's honorable and above reproach in the sight of God and of man. So how should we view our giving? 
in light of the greater kingdom work that God is doing. We're gonna dig right in. First, fulfill your eagerness. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10. Let's read it again. Um, Paul says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that, uh, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So Paul continues his appeal. He's making his appeal for this offering for the saints, for the church in Judea that he's very passionate about. And uh, he's, he's held up the example of the church in Macedonia who demonstrated this impossible math that, that, that is really not seen or possible through human standards, but, but reflects the gospel of God coming with power into someone's heart. And it's that math of excessive or extreme poverty with overflowing joy resulting in generous giving. And so the Macedonians gave, they gave of their own accord, uh, according to their means, even beyond their means. Then he held up the example of Christ. That was in verse nine, we read it last week, where Christ being rich, being wealthy, having everything in the universe as the creator of the universe, left it all to become poor so that by his poverty coming to earth, he might make us rich, eternally so. And we can never get away from that articulation of the gospel in verse nine, because that is embedded in the entire argument of these two chapters. You will only be able to listen to these two chapters if that verse nine has landed for you, as Paul means for it too. And so now he continues his appeal. And the way he advances the argument is by reminding them of their eagerness, their eagerness. Parents sometimes resort to these kinds of tactics to get their children to do something that they should. And in fact, it's something that the children deep down want to do. So when boys only eat sugars and carbs, you know, you remind them, you know, all those Marvel superheroes that you love and praise, right? You want to be tall, muscular, and strong like they are, right? Well, you got to eat your protein and vegetables. And so that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, I know you want to give. This is something you want to do. I'm just helping you follow through. I'm helping you get there. But I want you to see that desire and eagerness are big in this section. Don't miss that. Look at verse 10. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also there it is, to desire to do it. Verse 11. So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it. You see it again, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And then verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable. You know, what motivates our doing matters greatly, greatly. Whether we're relating to our boss, to our coworkers, to, to our friends, to our spouse, to our God. Sometimes we do things out of duty. You know, sometimes grandparents keep their grandkids because they feel like they have to, you know? Sometimes we do things out of fear. 
Uh, many times single women get involved sexually with men because they fear that if they don't do that, the men won't stick around in their relationship. It's very sad. Sometimes we do things out of pride. We feel that we have something to prove. But listen, there is no more powerful, more freeing, more lasting motive than desire. Genuine inner desire. And Paul knows that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into the life of someone with power, a host, a whole host of new desires are gonna be birthed in them by the spirit of God. And nowhere perhaps is this more crucial than when it comes to financial giving. Financial giving. In this whole section, Paul is extremely reticent with imperatives. He uses them all over the place in all kinds, you know, all of his letters. But right here in these two chapters, he's very reticent with them. What's an imperative? An imperative is a command, right? Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's not a request, it's a command. Like when your boss says to you, send me that report. Or when you say to your children, do the dishes. Sometimes they think you're making a suggestion. So they're like, no, thank you. And you're like, wrong answer, all <laughs> right? But when it comes to imperatives, Paul is very reticent here. He actually, in the whole two chapters, he only uses them once in verse 11, one time. So how is he leading the church in Corinth to the intended goal to give for the needs in Jerusalem? He holds up the example of the Macedonians. He holds up the example of Christ. And now he's appealing to their own eagerness, their own desire. And he's just helping them get there. I would encourage you to always do from joy. Do from joy. Do from desire. Serve from joy. Sing from joy. Study from joy. Give from joy. Pay your taxes from joy. You're like, you lost me there. <laughs> Do it from joy. I mean, think about this. If someone was bringing you flowers, would you want them to say to you, I brought you flowers because I'm afraid of you? <laughs> or to say, I brought you flowers because I resent you. Or I brought you flowers because I thought I had to here. Or would you want them to say, no, I brought you flowers because I really, really wanted to. Always do from joy. Let your giving come from, from an eagerness, from a readiness in desiring it. But that's not all. Our giving should also be in proportion to what God has given to us and what we have. Now, this is perhaps the most important principle on giving in the New Testament when it comes to how much to give. People are often asking, well, how much should I give? How much? Is it 10%? Show me. Show me the chapter and verse where it says that. You know, the principle of tithing God gave to Israel in the Old Testament is never reinstated for the New Testament church in the New Testament. When Jesus speaks about tithing in Matthew 23, 23, he's speaking within the context of Judaism. Now, that is not to say that there's nothing for us to learn from the way that God trained Israel to give. Far from it, much, much for us to learn. But God is after more than that more than a figure. And so Paul says here, look at verse 12. He says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the Lord wants us to give from, from desire, but also in proportion to what he gives to us. Paul had said the same in 1 Corinthians 16 about the same collection for Jerusalem. He's been working on this for some time. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse two. 
He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Store it up as he may prosper. Again, he has in view this collection for Jerusalem. But it's like the, those people, the women with the handful of rice. You know, each time they use rice, they take a little bit and they set it aside and they store it. That's what he's talking to them about. Store it, set it aside each week as you prosper in proportion to how God blesses you. Then we saw it a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 8, 3 about, of the Macedonians. He says, for they gave according to their means. And then he says, actually, as I testify, even beyond their means of their own accord. Because think about this. What's better for us to give us a, a figure of what he expects, like 10%, or for him to leave it for us to make that choice based on our identity in Christ? You see, someone could give 10% to gospel work, but then still be stingy and greedy with the other 90%. Someone could give $50,000 a year to the church, which I know we would go like, wow, that's a lot of money. But if the person makes half a million dollars, how sacrificial is that 10%? You see, it's not mainly about the number. It's about the footprint of Christ in our lives and how big it is. Because when we think about our identity in Christ and we remember that Jesus being rich became poor for us to make us rich by his poverty, when we think about that, imagine if that was our mindset. Imagine if our mindset was, I wanna make many rich. Just think about that. We lived with that desire, I wanna make many rich. Here's the thing though, to what degree are we willing to become poor? Because that's what it costs. That's what it takes. To what degree are we willing to become poor so that we may make many rich? Listen, if this series has been rubbing uh, you the wrong way, pushing your buttons, it's because you're not gonna hear anything like this anywhere else in our culture. Where have you ever, think about this, where have you ever heard anyone say, my goal in life is to become poor? That's my goal in life. I live in the U.S. of A and my goal is to become poor. That's just not how people think. My goal is to become poor. Can we say that? So that I may make many rich, many rich. And yes, this is talking financially, but it goes beyond that. With everything that I have, I'm gonna empty myself following the example of Christ that others, others, that it may overflow to the many. So it's in proportion to what God has given us. Now you may say, well, scripture says to give according to what we have, but unfortunately, I don't have much. Well, you see, the great thing about the gospel is that the gospel frees us to be content with what we have. Okay? What we have, God frees us to be content with that so that as he increases our resources, do you see that difference? Now this can all overflow to the many. I was talking to one of you a couple of weeks ago and this brother was just sharing, you know how the government has been sending money to people. He's like, you know, my wife and I got that and man, we wish that they could figure out who needs it and who doesn't. Uh, Cause we were like, we don't need this. So we just gave it to the church and to a friend that had need. But I just love that, that his heart was like, yeah, more, more, I need more. And if you got that and you needed it, uh, hey, praise God. But the gospel frees us to not just be greedy for more, 
to always want more. Jesus says in Matthew 25, we saw this in our last series. He says to his servant, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you see the emphasis on joy? Joy. That's where God is getting all of us to go to joy. Doing everything that we do from joy. Our desire should be not that God would give us a million dollars so that we can be generous. But rather that he would lead us to simplicity. To need less so that we can be generous. So our giving should come from desire, be in proportion to how God blesses us, and be equitable. Equitable. Look at verse 13. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Okay, Paul here gives us a principle that is very difficult for, difficult for us to grasp in the West. You see, this is a very important offering to Paul. Uh, he genuinely wants to provide for the needs of the church in Jerusalem, but he also wants to increase the unity between the Gentile and Jewish churches. It's very important for him as it relates to the gospel. And so the way he's doing that is by getting the Gentile churches of his mission to grow in compassion toward those who have less in Jerusalem. That's what he's after. It's very important to him that they remember them because salvation comes from the Jews after all. It's what Jesus says in John 4. So that's what Paul is after. But when Paul says here that he does not want the Corinthians to be burdened, what he means is he doesn't want them to be burdened by giving away their resources while the people in Jerusalem are at ease. That's not his goal. His goal is fairness. He says his goal is equity. Now, there's a difference between equality and equity. Sometimes we get those confused. The goal is not equality. The goal is not, I have more and you have less, so I have to give to you in such a way that we have the same, equal. That's not the goal. The goal is equity. I have excess and you have need. So I want to give to you in such a way that your need is met. You see the difference? And here Paul brings up an example from Israel's one, uh, uh, wilderness wanderings when they came out of Egypt and God fed them through manna. You recall that when Israel came out of Egypt, they end up in the desert by God's design. And God supernaturally feeds them with this food from heaven, which was this white bread-like food. Some people say the manna was like frosted flakes, but I think that's stretching it. But in any event, you know, Paul is reminding them that God fed them. And when that was happening, some people gather more, some people gather less. But then Exodus 16, and here's what Paul quotes here. Exodus 16 says, but when they measure it with an omer, it's a unit of measurement. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. You see? You see that they don't all have the same equality, but everybody has as much as they need. Equity. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians now is, you have the power to bring the same kind of equity to the body of Christ that God brought to Israel in the desert by how you handle the manna that God has given you, the resources that he has given to you. Now, you guys, this is not socialism. You see, in socialism, 
The state takes your money to make everyone equal. In gospel-driven generosity, you decide. You're always the one who decides how much to give. But what should inform your decision is the generosity of God in giving us the Christ, the generosity of Christ in becoming poor for us, the principle of proportion, how much God has blessed you, the principle of equity, how much you have in relation to the need of others and your eagerness in doing it, your sense of joy. These are the things that should inform our giving. The reason I say that it's difficult for us to grasp this concept in the West is because we've drunk deeply from the fountains of self-determination and autonomy that say everyone is as successful as their work ethic allows. So many people in our country believe that. Everyone is as successful as their work ethic allows. Listen, work ethic matters. That kind of statement is very simplistic. We forget where in, when in history we were born, where in the world we were born, what group we belong to, who our parents are. I guarantee you that if you have been born in North Korea, you would not have the same things you have here now. You see, our giving should move us to say, no, everything that I have is manna from God for the common good and for his glory. And I'm going to use God's resources as a steward. And I realize that not everyone has the same circumstances or the same gifting. And that my desire must be not just to take care of my tribe, but of God's people. And my goal must be equity. No one having too much, no one having too little. So our giving should be from eagerness in proportion to how God has blessed us and with equity in mind. And by the way, if this is your church family and you have a need, a bill, a need that you can't take care of, let us know. Give it to us so we can take care of it for you. I'm talking about a legitimate bill. It's not like, oh, I went gambling, I got in trouble. Not that. I'm talking about like a legitimate bill. Bring it to us. You know, we have a deacon's fund that we've given to for that very purpose, and we don't want to just collecting dust there. So let us know. You know, my, my fridge broke yesterday. I got to replace it. I don't need help replacing my bridge. By God, my bridge. My, I said that twice. I said it at 9 o'clock, my fridge. Maybe I think my, bri- my fridge is a bridge. I don't know. But uh, I don't need help with that, but maybe you do. Maybe you have a need that you can't take care of. Now, this congregation tends to do well. But still, if you have needs, let us know. Because we want to take care of our own. Really, do not be shy about this. Because if you have a need but you don't make it known, how can we help you? So does that inform your giving? Desire, proportion, and equity. Well... Within the church family, not only does giving matter, but also how those monies that are given are handled and managed. And so follow through with reliability. Follow through with reliability. You know, in our day, we're very used to being asked to give money for all kinds of causes, right? I mean, our alma maters ask us, which it's a little bit like, we already give you so much money, right? Like the hospital systems ask us, nonprofit organizations ask us, the church asks. In antiquity, In the Roman world where Paul and these Christians lived, asking for money, especially for it to be given to people that you may never meet that are some 800 miles away, was totally unheard of. So you can see why Paul is so careful in how he's framing this whole conversation about giving. He knows it's right. He knows it's for the gospel. He knows that Christ himself gave us the example of giving 
and the instructions to give, but he still has to win the Corinthians over. And his relationship with them has been of late on shaky ground. There were some people discrediting Paul's apostleship and ministry. And so it's very important to him that the congregation, the Corinthians be crystal clear on how this gift is gonna be handled. And so here he starts drawing attention to the delegation that's gonna take care of it. And he starts talking about Titus and how he was eager to serve. But not only that, how Titus is well respected and known by the church. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own Accord. Okay, I think this is so great. There's this reciprocity in the congregation. The congregation is eager to give and Titus is eager to lead. It's wonderful. This offering has to be handled. There's no PayPal, no Venmo, right? To like wire the funds. They have to be physically taken. And this journey is perilous, whether by land or sea. It's long. People would not easily volunteer for this. There's robbers all over the place. But Titus is earnest. God put it on his heart to help take care of this need. And the church knows and respects him well. And so he's saying, I'm going. It's a wonderful thing. You know, in Romans 12, where Paul talks about the different gifts that the spirit of God gives to the congregation for the common good. When he addresses leaders, he says, and to those who lead to do it with zeal. Zeal, that's Titus. He's eager, he's zealous to go and help in this important offering. You know, I'm so thankful for the entire team at Woodside, a team of leaders, men and women who, who, who help us do the work of ministry that God has assigned to us. Five years ago, when Anna and I came to interview with Woodside, one of the things that attracted us to the church was the pastors and how they carry themselves with humility. I remember us talked about that, like it made an impression on us. And as I've gotten to know them and more of the staff over the, these five years, that respect has only grown but I want you to be praying for the, the leaders of our church. We're only human. We're saints and sinners. We're not always going to get it right, but we want to be zealous. We want to lead the congregation with zeal because we really believe in what we are doing. Titus was zealous for this work. But I want you to see two other things that matter to Paul in handling this offering, and they are that it be done honorably and in partnership with the church. Listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, with him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as, as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. You know, there are two other well brothers that are accompanying Titus on this errand. We don't know their names, but what is clear is that Paul is at pains that the church understand the process 
by which this gift is gonna be handled. Look at the things that he calls our attention to. In verse 18, he says, with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So this brother was well known. He's famous in the congregation and he's famous for the right reasons, the preaching of the gospel. Verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that has been ministered by us. So the churches were involved. They were involved in the process of how this is going to get done. They knew what was at stake. And then in verse 20, he says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us for we aim at what is honorable, honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. You see, the goal is that everything be done above reproach, both in God's eyes and in the sight of man. But the interplay here between the congregation and what the congregation is doing and giving and the leadership and the leadership taking care of this gift is beautiful. It's important that there be a partnership, a strong partnership in what we're doing together as congregation and leaders. Look at this other brother that he's also sending within the delegation. Verse 22, he says, and with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So there's this other brother, we don't know his name, who is also earnest to go. He's like, he, he's, he's there. Hey, this is important, this is dangerous, but we have to do it, I'm going. Again, travel at that time was painful, was difficult, was long, and now you're loaded with this money. Man, just think about this. But it has to be done. And it's always a challenge and a gift when those kinds of reliable brothers and sisters are found. And by the way, let me make an aside here. As things have been reopening, and we've been open now since whatever, last June or July, uh, the coming back of volunteers has kind of been trickling in, okay? And so, but we need, we have many needs as a congregation to be able to do church. We're not asking you to travel 800 miles in peril to deliver a gift, just right here. We need help with kids ministry, with a worship team, with production, with a concierge, ask, answering questions, welcome, welcoming people. With the cafe, we're about to reopen the cafe, and I know you're like, oh, I'm in if that's what's uh, what, it, what it takes. Yes, that's what it takes, but it takes that in all areas. And so our hope should be that we would never lack volunteers, that we would always have many volunteers who are earnest. They're like, I wanna serve, I want to serve. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Okay, so it's important that the church family be involved in the process of the collection and how it was being delivered. And it was important that they be working in partnership with Paul and his delegates. You guys, ready giving excels with reliable partnership. So I wanna take this opportunity to invite you to our annual meeting on May 16th at the Troy campus. You have something in your bulletins to that end. I invite you to read through that. This is an important meeting for us as a church family because it's when we uh, choose and affirm the officers for, of our congregation. And it's also when we vote on our budget for next year. And, but it's also a time when we celebrate some of what God has done through our 
joint gospel efforts in the last 12 months. And there are, it was a hard year, we all know, but God has done amazing things. And we wanna share that with you. So this is an important meeting for us. Every year, you are all invited. And every year, many of you don't come. So come. This is your family. It's a family business kind of meeting. Be there, May 16th, 6 p.m. But beyond that, it's important for you to know that the highest authority on the human level, of course, the highest authority is God himself, but on the human level, the highest authority for our congregation comes from our board of elders, which is comprised of men from the 14 different campuses and the campus pastors. That is who, uh, who governs our church. And so the senior pastor and the staff are accountable to them. Now for Royal Oak, so there's over 30 of them, but for Royal Oak, our elders, many of you know them, uh, but just real quick in case you don't, are Peter Coates, you know, he's married to Betsy. Uh, it's Bill Robert, he's married to Karen. It's Nate Henderson, married to Beth, and Andrew Frith, married to Lauren. These men have been serving for a number of years. They are faithful brothers. Many of you know them. If you don't and you would like to, let us know. They would be happy to meet with you. They would be happy to meet with you, answer questions about uh, how the church runs and all of that. Each month, there's a meeting that uh, of the board of elders where the senior pastor, Chris, um, representing the staff, gives a report on the affairs of the church. So I share all of that to leave you with two areas of application in light of our text today. First, pray. Pray for the leadership of our church. And by leadership, I mean Chris, I mean the campus pastors, I mean our elders, deacons, deaconesses, our live group leaders, and other leaders. Pray for us. Pray that we'd be zealous and eager to do the work of ministry, gospel ministry that God has given to us. Pray that we be holy and godly and not give in to the cultural pressures around us that are rapidly finding the scriptures not only to be irrelevant, but also dangerous and harmful. We need a partnership between the congregation and the leaders. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, not only looking for someone to devour, but looking for entire congregations to abandon the gospel. This is no time for any of us to take a back seat or to check out from kingdom pursuits or to give our best energies and passions elsewhere. We must endure until the end and we can only do so together. So pray for the leadership of our church. And finally, finish. Finish the burden that God has given you to use money for his glory. Finish it. If you're like, hey, I've always been given. I've believed this forever. Don't think God is done with you. Asking you to be more sacrificial. And if you're like, hey, this is all very new to me, man. I, I, I don't know. That's okay. Let him lead you. You may go there like, oh, I don't know. But let him guide you. He's patient with us, but finish it. Finish it. This is the one imperative in the whole two chapters that Paul gives. Verse 11, that the burden that God has given them for giving, which started a number of months ago, must be carried through to completion. They have not finished it. And so he says to them in verse 11, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched 
by your completing it out of what you have. You guys, I know that many of us say, I want to give to the work of the Lord. So what are you waiting for? I want to give more to the work of the Lord. So why are you not doing it? Finish it. Take action. You guys, we have so much junk just in our garages that is putrefying. While people around the world are going hungry and without the light of Christ. Our giving must come from the heart. I talked to one of you last week or the one before that, and she was saying how in the church where she grew up, one of them, they published what everybody gave to everybody. And of course they left. That is sick. That is horrible. It's between you and God. It's you and God. But it must come from our hearts. And it must be proportionate to how much God has blessed us. And with the principle of equity in mind, aware of how rich we are compared to the need around us. Church, we are not only materially, but spiritually rich because our Lord became poor to make us eternally rich. And so if you have tasted, and I mean you've tasted the joy of the salvation that Jesus alone could have purchased for us, then let your heart be generous and your hands wide open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these two chapters are extremely convicting. They are very difficult for us to hear them without our hearts tightening up, without us making all kinds of justifications and excuses for how we live. Father, sometimes I feel like living in this country, the richest country in the history of the world, more of a curse and a blessing because of what it does to us leading us to think of how we should live what our lifestyle our high privileged lifestyle should be but I know it's a gift and it's a gift from you and there are wonderful things that Christians from this country have done and we want to be among them we want to be convicted by the Macedonians we want to be convicted by these women just setting aside handfuls of rice Lord we have storehouses help us help us soften our hearts Father I pray that everyone here would know that this is between them and you pray that there would be great questions that we're asking, but even more that we're allowing you to ask of us. I pray, Father, that you would give each one of us the desire to go to the grave empty-handed, but in the process making many, many rich. 
Lord, I know that desire is so far from what we've imbibed since we were born. But we ask it because we know that there's something stronger in us than our culture. The Spirit of Christ. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.